sports are really important vehicles for relationships. We have purpose. We have a why. We bring people together. We connect. I feel like God is our greatest supporter and our greatest coach. Welcome to Rabbi on the Sidelines. This is Rabbi Erez Sherman from Sinai Temple in Los Angeles. This week, we're not going to speak to somebody who is an athlete or even a coach, but somebody who has made a deep impact in both the Jewish world and the sports world. Steve Rosenberg is the author of this newly released book, Make Bold Things Happen, inspirational stories from sports, business, and life, and the chairman of the Jewish Hall of Fame in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Steve, it's so great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show today. Rabbi, it's great to see you, and thank you for having me. Of course. There are so many questions I have about this book, not about the book, but really about your journey to the book. And the one word I want to start with is the Yiddish word, and that's chutzpah. Because it's not chutzpah that you wrote the book, but how to make bold things happen is to have that inner sense of strength and maybe doing some things that don't allow us to miss an opportunity. Because I believe so many things in our lives pass us by because we don't have the chutzpah to actually not just say something, but take action and do. So what is the chutzpah that is the secret to making bold things happen? You have to put yourself out there, Rabbi. You can't be afraid to show up and be present. It is very easy in life, and you know this because you see it through your synagogue and through things that you do in life. Very easy to show up, do your job, go home, sit on the couch, watch TV, go to bed, rinse, wash, repeat. But to go and to meet people and to do different things and to try new things. Look, you have a direct path to the to the Lord. I don't. I kind of have oh, a roundabout way. As far as I know, we only have one trip around this earth. And I'm going to do everything that I can to meet as many people and to put myself in position. That's what I've always thought was important. You know, some people collect wine. Some people collect stamps or baseball cards. I've always collected people because to me, people and their stories and their journeys are what makes life so incredibly important and impressive. And if you are put yourself out there, you never know what's going to be behind door number one or what's going to be under a rock or who you're going to meet and what opportunities not only might be presented to you, but what you might be able to present to others. Actually, maybe that's the difference between fundraising and friend raising, or maybe not a difference, but in fact, the deep connection between those, because as I often hear that people don't give to something, but that people give to people. Without question, people give to people and they also give to people who are smart and passionate. I always hear this term about, oh, are you a professional fundraiser? And I say, I don't need to be a professional fundraiser. I personally have raised millions and millions of dollars because I get involved in projects that I care about and believe about and I can get other people inspired. And people do give to people. You're 100% correct. And so what's a project that you've been inspired that maybe you didn't think was going to be on your path, but because of the making bold things happen attitude that you have, you got to something that you didn't even know you were going to get to? That's a really good question. You know, a lot of the fundraising I've done has been around Jewish causes. Some of it has been Jewish sports through I've been involved in the Maccabi USA world, international teams, JCC Maccabi games, the Jewish Federation, um, raising money for Jewish political candidates. And every time you go in, you, you never know what is going to happen. Asking anybody for money is to some people a very frightening thing. But if you present people the opportunity and you show them where the end result might be and you do it in a good, smart, passionate way, 
people will respond to you. Uh, you know, if you're not, it, it's sometimes hard to sell ice to an Eskimo, but yeah. if you are really have good projects with good meaning and you really show people that you care, they're going to step up for you. I really believe that. And so let's transition a little to the sports world, but talk about youth sports. I have kids that are 11, nine and seven years old. They're involved in little league and school basketball. And I run a basketball camp here at Sinai temple. And, you know, I might change the way that we do things based on what you spoke about the trophy world that in today's world, every child gets a trophy because they participated. But sometimes it seems like it's more important to learn how to lose than this to learn how to win. So take us through the trophy syndrome of today and how we can work on when we work on that, we can actually work on also making our society a little better as well. That's a great point. So I like to consider myself, I don't pat myself on the back often, but I was one of the first to talk about participation trophies. And it happened because my oldest son, and I, when he first got a participation trophy, and then as he got a little bit older, I watched him actually earn trophies. And I saw where he put the trophies that he earned versus the participation trophies. And as I was running the a little league, a very large little league in, outside of Philadelphia, I actually just went to the board. I was the president. I said, let's do away with participation trophies. They're a waste of money. What are we really teaching the kids? And let's just save money. You would have thought that I said, at the end of the season, we're going to beat the kids because everybody said, oh, my God, you can't take away the participation trophies. What are we teaching the kids? That became a whole situation that ended up being a front page Wall Street Journal story right. called Trophy Overload. And at the time, I had a, a, a young man on my team whose father was a prolific radio personality. And I ended up being a chapter in his book. And it was it, it really took on a life of its own to me. The best thing about participation in youth sports is learning to win, learning to lose, making new friends, right? I ran a large basketball league. I ran a baseball league. And the number one request I would always get was, can little Johnny play with his friend, little Pete? Otherwise, he won't enjoy himself. And invariably, I would say, absolutely not. First of all, we draft kids so that we try to make the teams fair because little Johnny and little Petey may be the two best players and we can't have stacked teams, number one. Number two, this whole experience is about experience, making new friends. But more importantly, Rabbi, in today's world, kids don't have not learned how to lose. You cannot experience the joy of winning if you have not experienced what it feels like to lose. And in today's society, sports, school, anything, Parents are way too involved in trying to make sure that their kids don't fail. They don't want them to experience failure. And I don't know about you, I experienced a lot of failure in my life. Literally from the time I was at, I can remember, we lost, we kept score, I got bad grades, I didn't make teams. And I don't know what level of success I've achieved in my life, but whatever I've achieved, it's because I know, I know that when you not get knocked down, you dust yourself off, you pick yourself up, and you start all over again. But in today's world, oh, my God, you're keeping score? We can't have winners and losers. Well, that's what life's about. Some people win, some people lose. doesn't mean that you're a loser. You yeah. lost this particular instance. Get up. What did you learn? And go back and win the next time. Youth sports is a microcosm for life. And if you don't learn to lose early, you're going to have a real problem later on in life.
I mean, I think it's not just about losing, it's about falling. Actually, my wife, Rabbi Nicole Guzik, who I served Sinai Temple with just this past week, gave a sermon about skiing. We went skiing for the first time with our children, and the teacher, the most important thing she said you're going to learn is how to fall correctly. Because if you fall in the wrong way, you're going to keep going down that hill. And so how to get up again is really a, a moment of sports. And one of those things that you wrote about very powerfully is not really about sports, but about your own life. And that's the loss of your mother as a young child and learning on your own how to quickly get up again. What was the power and impact of both your mom in your life just for the number of years that you had her, but also as importantly, because at the end of the book, you said, wow, if my mom knew that I wrote this book, she would really be proud. The story. Yeah. She was a teacher and I didn't, I was seven years old when my mom died. My brother was only two. Mm -hmm. very insignificant time to spend with the, with a parent. And I don't care what anybody says, the loss of a mother at that age is something that is almost impossible to overcome. And we were blessed, my brother and I, we lived with, uh, ended up living with a phenomenal set of grandparents who raised us with very old school values. I still joke with people, my curfew was 8 p.m. until I was 16 years old. And that didn't mean 801, that meant 8 p.m. And, <laughs> but I never talked about the loss of my mother ever with anybody because I just felt different and I never wanted to be different. So if people would say, oh, your mom must be so proud. I'd be, yeah, like I didn't know how to articulate my feelings about any of that. And it really wasn't until much later in life, like maybe 10 or 15 years ago, that I even found out how she died and what the causes and the circumstances around it were. And it was just very hard. Fortunately, we were blessed. It literally did take a village to raise us. Like I said, my paternal grandparents we lived with, they we, we were not people of means whatsoever. I started working as a I was 12 years old and I had a paper route and I was washing dishes. I was a usher in a movie theater and I didn't work so that I could have extra things. I worked so that I could have things. And you know, my brother was two. He didn't know his mother at all. And it's still very difficult for me to have conversations with him about her. It's only very recently that I've even opened up to talk about her. My oldest son is named for her. That was like inevitable from the time that I, that, that she passed. That I knew my, my firstborn son would be named after her, but it's just a challenge. And I've always had a real place in my heart for any young person who loses a parent, particularly a mother. I go out of my way, whether it's my teams to draft those kids that were in single parent families or to coach or to mentor or to spend time with, because the, those are, that's just time that you can't get back. I, I'm, I'm going to be 58 in a couple of weeks. There are still days I wake up and I still feel that, that loss. And I probably need psychological help. There's no question, but um, it's just, it, it, it's an, it, it's a massive object um, obstacle to overcome. You wrote a lot about finding those people maybe who might've had loss in their life, but also have the ability not to say no. And one of those uh, young people not saying no, I believe, was uh, Brian, who had yep. a different reason of not to say no. And take us through that moment and why you put a kid like that. You've met so many people in your life. As you said, you're a collector of people, but you only have a certain amount of pages. It's an amazing book. Make both <laughs> happen. How do you decide to put Brian's story in there in terms of not saying no and what that can teach us? So Brian Leib, I met. He was 
uh, probably in his mid thirties. I met him at an event. He sought me out. I was working at the Jewish Federation at the time. And he said, I need, I need your help. I'm running for Congress. And he tells me that he's running for Congress in Philadelphia's third congressional district, which is probably not as a, as a Republican. Okay. It's one of the most democratic districts in the United States. And in my head, I'm thinking to myself, this guy's a Meshuggah. He's got no shot. Like he would have a better shot if he said to me, Steve, I'm going to put on my talus and yarmulke and I'm going to try to walk into Gaza safely. That would have, he probably would have had a better shot. But at that moment, I knew this guy had something that a lot of people don't have. And he worked, he was underfunded, he was undermarketed, he was understaffed, and he polled pretty well. And for a Republican with very little money, he ended up with tens of thousands of votes against a very formidable opponent who was still in Congress, by the way. And from that point on, Brian and I have remained friends. And I've known that that guy is going to get somewhere and do something. He is now a contributor on Newsmax. He talks wonderfully about the state of Israel, about Jew hatred and anti-Semitism. And he's a leader. And for the next 20 or 30 years, Brian Leib is a guy that all people in the Jewish community are going to know about and hear about, but he didn't know the word no, and he was never going to accept the word no, and he's a massive networker who is not afraid to put himself out there, and you talk about chutzpah, that's a guy that defines the term. But bring it back to before about not saying no in his baseball team, I correct, right? Oh, yeah. He goes to a high school team with like you know, 20 boys, he's a baseball player, and they say, we can't have a team, and the coach and the principal, or not the coach, the principal and the head of school challenge him to say, all right, if you can get X number of names on a piece of paper, we'll consider it. He goes and he does it. And they say, all right, now we need you to raise $5,000. They keep putting these challenges in front of him, presuming that he's not going to meet any of them. There's not only did he play four years of high school baseball because he met every challenge, that high school still has a boys baseball team started because of him. No is when you hear no, start over again. No is just a, a, a bump in the road to get to yes. But some people hear no and they say, okay, and they move on. No for people like Brian, for people like me, for people like you is just a way to find another door to get to yes. But one of those no's, in fact, the way that we connected just a couple of months ago was what was happening with anti-Semitism in the sports world. Um, you wrote a beautiful note to me when you saw me in the or in the public sphere and speaking, not necessarily um, against people, but for people, that how sports can bring people together and not be a moment of divisiveness. You also had the opportunity um, within the national media to share your voice, um, not just again against anti-Semitism, but how sports can bring people together. Now you have this amazing entrepreneurial aspect, this friend raising, you have this passion of sports and involved with so many different organizations like that. Bring those two together for me and tell us how Judaism or our faith and sports can also improve uh, our lives for tomorrow. So I always say sports is the opiate of the masses. I know Karl Marx said religion was, but in today's world, it's sports. When you think about the amount of time, effort, energy, and now money that people spend talking about, writing about, reading about, watching sports on Monday night, Damar Hamlin from my yeah. home Pittsburgh, with that tragedy, you can't turn on not just ESPN, Good Morning America, the Today Show, Fox, mm. CNN, whatever it is, the lead story is Damar Hamlin. 
That was mm-hmm. a tragic incident happened on the sports playing field and it has rallied a nation, right? And $7 million of this foundation of toys in two insane, days. right? And this is a wonderful young man who, again, grew up in Pittsburgh and has not just that community and not just the Buffalo community, but the United States. So mm-hmm. to me, when I reached out to you, when, when I read what Kyrie said, you know, to me, it was a prime example of how can we use sports and sports celebrities, people like, you know, you and I were talking earlier about Bruce Pearl, Tal Brody, Tamir Goodman, who's somebody else that I write about in, in my in my book, people who have achieved real greatness in sports and who are Jewish. And how can we use their voices? You know, last year I wrote about uh, and, and 2022 was the 50th anniversary of, to me, what is the greatest tragedy in, in sports, the murder of 11 Israeli athletes at the Munich Games in 1972 by Black September. And it wasn't until the Japan Games of just a couple of years ago that the Olympic Committee even acknowledged the loss of those lives. In 1972, they didn't even cancel a game or delay a game or acknowledge those 11 lives in any way, shape, or form. And this was in Germany just 27 years after the Holocaust. And those 11, we always recognize them at the Maccabi Games. But that is, I I can't think of anything worse that's ever happened in sports. So when Kyrie spoke horribly about Jews, when Jew hatred is running rampant every single day, we need sports both as a distraction, but also as something that can shine the light with those great people, people like Bob Kraft. Bob Kraft gave $18,003 to DeMar Hamlin's charity. 18, obviously, for high, and then three for DeMar's number. People like Bob Kraft who have done so much, not just for the state of Israel, but for Jewish causes. We need more of that, and that's where that intersection of Jew and sports really shines the light, and that's what we need more of. Well, let's take the Maccabi games, for instance, because I think it's become very popular recently, right? When Bruce Pearl spoke here at Sinai Temple just a couple of weeks ago, he explained who was on his team. Todd Golden, who he just beat at Florida, um, and John Shire, who's at Duke. And as he joked to us, he said the, the referee's names were Abraham Yitzchak and Yaakov, and he couldn't get a call. Um, but he said that experience, when he said came here, he said, I'm not Coach Bruce Pearl, I'm Mordechai Yaakov. How do these ideas... And then allowing the Jewish community to go out and not just inform and not just educate, but actually cement love and relationship between people who don't know us. How can sports bring that piece? And maybe how, what have you seen both through the Maccabi world and also through the Israel world that that can be a healer? You know, it's funny you mentioned that. I, I, I'm a, I've been a big supporter of Maccabi for many years. My kids have all played internationally through the JCC games. I've been fortunate to go all over and watch games. I've chaired national teams. And the one thing that I would encourage anybody that is paying attention to this is the Maccabi games are important, okay? And there are less kids, young people, I should say, trying out for teams than ever before. Not because they don't like Maccabi or they don't like Jewish, but because there's been this incredible emphasis put on their AAU teams and their travel teams and they're trying to get into college. And I can assure you that anybody that opted not to go to Israel in 2021 to be in the Maccabi games, to play in a AAU tournament 30 years from now, isn't going to remember what tournament they played in in 2021. 
Had they been in Israel playing in the Maccabi games, they would not have forgotten that. But again, you talk about Bruce Pearl. You talk about Samir Goodman. Tal Brody gave up an NBA career. He was a first-round draft pick out of the University of Illinois from Trenton, New Jersey, to play for to play in Israel. I would say that Tal Brody is probably the most celebrated and decorated Israeli athlete of all time. Him leading the Israelis over the Soviets in the EuroLeague yep. is still talked about. I was just with Tal in September, and he spoke to a group that I had brought over there, and they were mesmerized by Tal's story. Gave up the NBA. Now, granted, it was a different NBA, but he gave up his life in the United States to go make Aliyah and be in Israel. And that opportunity is so hard for people to see. I'll tell you, my own son, my oldest son, after was a college baseball player, after graduating, he said, Dad, I want to keep playing. And I'm thinking to myself, well, the Phillies haven't called. The Yankees haven't called. They're like, what's your plan? And he said, I'm going to go to Israel. They have a league there. I'm going to coach and I'm going to play. And little did he know or I know that they were forming this national team. Mm -hmm. And he ended up being a part. He made Aliyah. He ended up being on that national Olympic baseball team that qualified for the Japan Games. Life-changing experience for him. And he did it through sports and through Israel. He's come back. He's in the States now. He goes and he talks about that experiences. He still coaches young people and talks to young people. But this ability to blend sports and Judaism and Israel, to me, the best thing when you go to the Maccabi games is when you sit there and they play Hatikva and mm. everybody is Jewish and everybody knows the words. Right. It's not like with Israel wins a, a, a medal in the Olympic Games and there's like six people in the stands that can sing Hatikva. You're at the Maccabi Games. Everybody knows the words to Hatikva, whether you're from Brazil, whether you're from the United States, Canada, Mexico, it doesn't Italy, it doesn't matter what language you speak. When Hatikva comes on, everybody gets teary eyed and everybody sings Hatikva. And as Jews, we're 16 million worldwide. And when we can all come together as one like that and not be afraid. What a greater platform. What a greater place to be. And so we need more. It's interesting because so that's people coming from outside of Israel to Israel with that really the only common bond of sports. And then you have people who made Aliyah like your son or a couple of weeks ago, I spoke with the Philadelphia native, Alyssa Zagoskin, who's head coach of the women's flag football team in Israel. And she spoke about what it means to interact with, for instance, people in the Muslim world and Arab countries when they hear Hatikva and them telling her, you know what, we actually are all good with this, but it's more of like the leadership. And so that sports is something that allows those connections that would never, never occur. A young woman from Philadelphia making Aliyah, then going to travel to Turkey to play flag football and then hearing that <laughs> national anthem for the first time as well. Right. It's amazing. It really, I, I will tell you that one of the best experiences I had in my life ever, and I wrote about this before, my the Israeli baseball team, Mm-hmm. was in the European Championships, and it was held in Germany, in Bonn, Germany. And we're sitting there, and Israel is playing Germany. Right. And the game goes into the bottom of the ninth, and it was one of the most exciting games, probably the most exciting sports event that I've ever seen personally. And Israel ends up beating Germany. And there are, I don't know, probably a 1,000 Germans on the first base side, singing whatever songs they're singing in German, German flags all over. There's about 30 Israel supporters on the third base side. And we were never worried 
for from a safety perspective, but it was very intimidating. And when Israel won in the most dramatic possible fashion, with the runner being thrown out at home plate in the bottom of the ninth to preserve a victory, the feeling of pride that I walked out with, and I didn't participate in the game, but to watch Israel beat Germany with an Israeli flag flying in the outfield in 20, I guess this is 2020 or 2019, I don't remember, it was pre-COVID 2019, was like I had tears in my eyes, real tears flowing down my cheeks because it was an unimaginable feeling. And that wasn't in Israel. And there was no Hatikva playing after the game. But to watch Israel beat Germany in Germany in any sport, insane. Absolutely. And so in this country of America, often in the famous movie Airplane, right, when they say that the here's some short reading and here's a list of Jews in sports, right? We obviously have the Sandy Koufax effect. And if you're not familiar with the podcast, uh, the franchise with Meredith Shiner, uh, yep. Jews in America, good friend of this program as well. She did an amazing job of really reaching and seeing what Jews in sports was all about um, in terms of historical aspect. You have Sandy Koufax. You had uh, you know Greenberg. But now you have kids like Ryan Terrell who also yep. was at the Temple a couple weeks ago, is going to be out here in, uh, in two weeks playing against the Ontario in, in the G League. Here, he says, you know what, I'm not going to Israel yet, but I'm going to be the guy with the keeper in the NBA. What do you see as the, uh, the impact of people in sport? For instance, Adam Newman, the deputy chief of the Big Ten, who Shomer Shabbat, who was also out here just last week for the Rose Bowl, was saying, I can do both. How do you see now sports and faith in this country of the United States becoming a little more open for Jews? It's unbelievable. There were also two youngsters. In fact, the um, Ryan Terrell's coach, Elliot Steinmetz, at Yeshiva's son got drafted into the, into the leagues, and he's Shomer Shabbos, and he's a very good prospect. So there's, we're starting to creep in, and we're going to make a dent. And as chairman of the Philadelphia Jewish Sports Hall of Fame at the induction ceremony this past year, what I said was, there's many organizations that fight Jew hatred, fight anti-Semitism. Organizations like the Sports Hall of Fame don't do that. But what we do is something, in my opinion, that's even more important. There's a, an, an old saying in sports that goes, you know, a good offense, the, the best defense is a good offense. Mm -hmm. And from a sports perspective, and what you're talking about here, Rabbi, is for us to be able to shine the light on the Ryan Terrells and all these young athletes or is the best way to show people that we're good at things. We're not a little pamphlet. There are hall of halls of fame all over the country. There's an international hall of fame, a Jewish sports hall of fame in Jerusalem that has incredible number of people. There are stories like of Alfred Nekesh who swam in Germany in 1936, medaled, was uh, in the Holocaust, was a survivor, came out and won another medal in the 48 London Games. Nobody knows that story. But if you start to Google and learn about Jewish athletes, it's much more than Sandy Koufax or Hank Greenberg or some of the bigger known names. There's a lot of really great stories, and they're not just relegated to the big four sports. You have rowers, you have fencers, you have boxers, you have boxing judges, you have many, many great accomplishments. So for me, we need to shine the light on the great accomplishments of Jewish athletes. By the way, of Jewish scientists, of Jewish actors, of Jewish whatever, that's one of the best ways that we can help fight, in my opinion, Jew hatred and anti-Semitism.
to shine the light on all these great accomplishments. Right now we're doing it through sports. Nobody's rooting for Ryan Terrell more than me. I have a big email list and I send articles around to people all the time. I've been sending Ryan Terrell articles around for two years. Uh I have no idea if he's going to make the NBA or not, but I can promise you one thing. If he makes it, I'm going to his first game. I don't care if it's in the West Coast, the East Coast, the North, the South. I'm going to that game. Actually, next uh, couple of weeks, we have Gary Belsky, who wrote the ESPN article about him um, on this show as well in terms of uh, of the mainstream media, right? The Tamir Goodman effect with the Sports Illustrated effect in the the color in Jewish Jordan as well. Um, Who's walking through those halls of the Hall of Fame? And in the next five years, who do you want to walk through those walls of the Philadelphia Jewish Sports Hall of Fame to be able to shine that light upon Jews and sports? You know, it's funny. I, as I sit in the board meetings, every year I hear from some of the elder statesmen say, we're going to run out of people. We're not going to have anybody else to induct. And I keep saying, and every year we find more and more and more people. Some of them are people that we probably should have recognized who are deceased, but there's always great people to induct. Again, it doesn't have to be just part of the big four. This past year, we inducted a, a guy who played at Penn, played in the NFL, Brent Novoselsky. There are many great Jewish athletes, and with the proliferation of youth sports and and more and more kids playing in sports, I'm not worried about us having plenty of inductees over the next 20 years. We've had people in Philly like Arn Tellum, Super Agent Arn Tellum. We've had um, boxers, like I said, boxing agents. We've had so many people, and every year we probably get anywhere between 70 and 100 new nominations. Some of them are obviously more qualified than others, and for us – sort of the delineation is we hope that you would have played, you know, somewhat, uh, uh, definitely college, maybe professionally, uh, and and that could be minor leagues, um, in the Olympics, something like that. If you were just a great high school player, no knocks on that, probably not Hall of Fame worthy, but I always get a kick out of somebody might say, well, he only hit 235 in the major leagues. And I say, yeah, right, in the major leagues, my son would have cut off a finger to have one at bat in the major leagues. You get to the major leagues, I don't care if you're at 235 or 532, you're getting into our Hall of Fame because that's somebody that we want to shine the light on. If you play in the WNBA, if you are a, a great tennis player, whatever you are, and you achieve that kind of a accomplishment. We had a fencer that we inducted a couple of years ago was in three Olympiads, three. Wow. No brainer. And who do you want to see those, right? Is it, is it for me in the Jewish community? Is it for the Catholic, the Muslim, the African-American, the Asian community? Who do we want walking those halls to begin to learn our story to, as you said, shine the light and not fight against something? That's a great question. I want anybody and everybody. In fact, after Kyrie said what Kyrie said, I reached mm-hmm. out to the Nets. I reached out to his agent, which happens to be a stepmom. I reached out to anybody and everybody I knew because I wanted to personally bring Kyrie, and by the way, anybody else he wanted, to the Hall of Fame, just so he could see the mm-hmm. type of Jewish people that there were from an athletic perspective. Of course, I never heard from him. And But I want everybody. We just actually moved our venue to our JCC. And the good thing about the Philadelphia, the JCC, the one that we have left in Philadelphia, is this is a cross-section of people. While it's called the Jewish Community Center, they have a plurality of non-Jews that use the facility, many of them from the African-American community, which is just across the street from where the J is. And when you walk in, the first thing you see is this beautiful 
monument, this beautiful installation of the Jewish Sports Hall of Fame. And you can't help but look at it and notice it. And I want everybody to see it. To me, it's more important to reach the young people. I don't care if they're Jewish or not Jewish, because I want young people to know that they too can achieve these sorts of goals, no matter what it is that they want to do. You know, look, again, with youth sports, sometimes there's this delusion from parents that their kid's going to play professionally. I used to tell people in our little league that their kid had a better chance of owning the Phillies than playing for the Phillies. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's probably true, but there's a lot of great things you could do to get yourself involved in sports, broadcasting, managing, uh, whatever it is you want to do and still qualify for things like the hall of fame. Again, sports opiate of the masses, it's a big business. I started my career in sports. I have a sports administration degree back at a time when sports was nothing. ESPN was only seven or eight years old when I first got my degree. Nobody could have, or at least I couldn't have projected that sports would be this multi-trillion dollar business. And there would be things like, you know, DraftKings and FanDuel and all these other, you know, fantasy league and betting apps. But I want everybody to see it, Rabbi. Everybody and anybody, but particularly for me, Kids. Kids need to see this. That would be interesting for schools, just like, for instance, in Los Angeles, every school, Jewish or not Jewish, public or private, they go through the Museum of Tolerance, right? If they went through sports hall of fames, which again, you know, people sort of laughed at me when I began this project. You're a rabbi and don't talk about sports. But we know what Solomon Schechter said, that if you're going to be a successful rabbi in this United States of America, you need to understand the rules of baseball because that's where (laughs) people are. And that's what these rules about falling up and down every metaphor that's on that field is a spiritual metaphor in our, in our sermons as well. hundred percent. Correct. Uh, people have, people have to live on their wishes, hopes, and dreams. And so many of those come with a ball or a bat or a net or a stick or something. And why not let them have dreams about sports until they can't, the, the uniform comes off for everybody at some point. For most, it's about 12 years old for Tom Brady, it's 46 or whenever he's going to stop. But Play until you can't play anymore. I've had just last week somebody said, Oh, Tom Brady should retire. And I said, Why? Tom Brady's, let Tom Brady play until he's 80 if he's able to, because when that uniform comes off, it can never go back on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's right? interesting because now sports is used as a tool of engagement. When you look at, for mm-hmm. instance, Ray Allen, right? When he's visiting the Holocaust Memorial or, uh, Next week, I'm going to be talking to Coach Bob McKillop, Steph Curry's college coach at Davidson, who in 2018 didn't take his team to Israel, but took his team to Auschwitz. But now there's a movement of when there's no survivors left, who's going to be here to tell that story? Let's talk to athletes who have that platform, who may not, who had the platform, may not have the education understanding, and that can make a big difference in this world as well. And as you know, Ray Allen has been one of the most wonderful spokespeople that there is about the Holocaust. He visited Auschwitz. Last year on uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day, I put a post up on LinkedIn with Ray Allen with this iconic image of him walking down the train tracks. I I, I think I had like 50,000 impressions just from posting this picture in a couple of sentences. Ray Allen has been a tireless advocate for the Jewish people, and we need more of that, not less. And so you're a Philadelphia man through and through, but really at heart, you're a man from Pittsburgh. Um, So obviously the Hamlin story hits home, but also the Tree of Life story hits home. Maybe talk about a little bit about that with Tree of Life and sports, because one of the first things to come out were the Steelers who wrote on their helmets or their sneakers, right, to Stronger Together. 
Um, I remember watching Syracuse versus Pitt basketball game, reaching out to their coaching staff who did not have a Jew on their staff. And in their collar here, they had a Magain David, a Jewish star as they played against Syracuse. Um, what is it about Pittsburgh that says we are stronger together? And at the end of your book, you speak about Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and the idea that the lessons that you learned from growing up in that neighborhood can be brought to this country in such a divide right now. Well, first, let, let me say when uh, October 27, 2018, I was actually in Israel mm. and I have this daily perpetual ongoing text chain with my five best friends that I grew up with. We refer to it as it's, it's the fellas is what we call it. And somebody said active shooter tree of life. And I just sort of dismissed it saying, oh, it must be another tree of life. Awful. But what, what could it be? My brother lives across the street from tree of life. Still, I call him because he knows everybody and everything. I say, Tree of Life, active shooter said, I just drove by there, all clear. Like, okay, not 45 seconds later, I call him back and I say, I don't know where you just drove past, but get in your basement and do not leave because it's it's bad in Squirrel Hill. And I'm in Israel and I'm just trying to find an English speaking station where I can get news. Mm -hmm. All I want to do is figure out what can I do. And long story short, it was just a heinous, horrific uh, situation. It's not just Pittsburgh, Rabbi. It's the Squirrel Hill community, which mm -hmm. is, you know, has always been a predominantly Jewish community. Uh, a lot of people refer to it as sort of the Pittsburgh diaspora that all comes out of Squirrel Hill. Mm -hmm. This is I never really realized it. You sort of knew it growing up, but it literally was Mr. Rogers neighborhood. We all grew up within a mile of Fred Rogers and mm -hmm. you would see him at Giant Eagle. You would see him getting gas. You would see him wherever. And the lessons that he taught his unwavering commitment to kids and his unwavering commitment to diversity and to teaching people tolerance. You know, back in 1969, this iconic image of him sitting in his backyard with his feet in a pool with black officer Clemens, if I, I believe that was his name, that was unheard of in 1969. He talked about issues related to sexual orientation and race and just the fact to love your neighbor. And it's never more imminent than it is in Squirrel Hill. And this is a community that, well, it's tragic and it's sad. And I knew, you know, several of the people that perished that day. And unfortunately, the Steelers were so connected because the two brothers, Rosenthal, that died, one of their sisters was very close to all the Steelers, worked there for a while. So there was an obvious connection. And it was, there, there was never a moment that I didn't think that Squirrel Hill in particular, would recover immediately and quickly, and they have. I go back there often. As I said, my brother lives there, and I go back with a sense of pride. It's still sad. Tree of Life still stands, and I know that they put together a group and they're trying to figure out what to do with the building, but the lessons that Mr. Rogers taught, decency and honesty and hard work, but most importantly, love and respect for your neighbor, which, frankly, we don't have now. Now, I would like to see what Mr. Rogers would say about Facebook and Instagram and all these other, what I refer to as anti-social media channels. We don't need them. They're divisive and they're, they're, they're not healthy for anybody. So we grew up in a time when it was a lot easier to be a kid. I can't imagine what it would be like to be eight or nine or 10 years old right now, but to live literally in Mr. Rogers' shadows, I couldn't imagine growing up in a better, more tolerant, more loving, more caring neighborhood than the Squirrel Hill section of Pittsburgh. 
And so as we conclude, first, the author of uh, Make Bold Things Happen, newly released book by Steve Rosenberg, chairman of the Jewish Hall of Fame in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, very active in Maccabi and other uh, philanthropic, uh, so many different things that we don't have even the litany to list. If there's a Jewish sports faith story that we want to look forward to this year, what's on in your mind if you can be that prophet as we head into the new year? That, wow. that this year, this year's story seemed to be Kyrie anti-Semitism. But if another rabbi or if uh, the next time a rabbi goes on ESPN and TNT, what's the story of love and uh, light that we want to share? I'm, I'm really hopeful, Rabbi. That's a great question. And I'm, I'm hopeful that there's some, I'm, obviously I'm hopeful that there are no more incidents, but you and I both know that that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. But I'm hopeful that the Bruce Pearls, the Tamir Goodmans, the Ryan Terrells, that they exceed the hatred, right? I hear constantly that, as you do, as we all do, that you know we control the media and we control this. And I, I say to people, well, if we control the media, we're really, really bad at it because <laughs> the media continues to portray us in the worst possible way. So mm -hmm. I just would love, and this is really pie in the sky, and but we, we need those great Jewish athletes, right? Israel's participating again in the World Baseball Classic. They have a very tough road to hoe. They're in a division with the United States and with the Dominican Republic, and they did not do a great job of recruiting. Their manager is Ian Kinsler, who my son was fortunate to play with and is in a text chain with, and they're hopeful that they're going to be involved. So maybe we get a great story out of Team Israel again, like we did in 2017 at the World Baseball Classic. But I, I, I would just hope that the... Iranians, the Turks, the anybody that has the opportunity to wrestle or participate mm -hmm. in judo against the Jews, just get in there and participate. Mm -hmm. We're good people. We're honest people. We're hardworking people. In my opinion, we're the greatest overachievers in the history of the planet, kicked out of every country that there is. And now we're active in the sports fields of all fields. And just give us a chance. I, I can't predict what that one story is going to be, but you mentioned it, and we've talked about it at nauseum. I'm going to pray that come October, Ryan Terrell is in an NBA mini, is in, in, in an NBA training camp, and he's on a roster. Uh, give me the chills right there. And uh, Ryan Terrell, been here in Sinai Temple, a good friend of our uh, program here as well. Steve, it's so good to have you on the show of Rabbi on Sidelines when you're out in L.A. We look forward to hosting you here at Sinai Temple and much for more sure. partnership as uh, we bring sports and faith uh, through the world at large. Thank you. Rabbi, great job. My honor, my pleasure. Great to see you and keep up the outstanding work. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye bye.